0: That's his first escape. He's got three more escapes that follow this. This is that second headline, if you were reading the news at this time. Yet another great escape. This is verses 4 through 14. And if you were to read that news story, the the core truth the reporter would be conveying to you there is that Samson does not take temptation seriously. It's It's a game to him. It's a sport. You might be asking, why did he tell Delilah these things about him why is he making stuff up that he knows is not true well it's kind of a game to him he's in control he's got the power over this woman it says there in verse 4 after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek that that's in the region of Judah but we don't know much about Delilah was she a Philistine or was she just a really uh, shaky Israelite without much loyalty to the Lord well, he loves her, and if his track record proves true, he's not really one who, who goes after certain types of women with character. He goes after, really, whatever woman he can find. But he loves her. He's, he's giving his heart to her. But unbeknownst to him, in verse 5, this is what's going on behind the scenes. The Philistines come up to her and say, seduce him, see where their strength lies. We want to overpower him. We want to bind him, humble him. And by the way, if you find out, we're going to give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And then Samson, not knowing that, just thinking it's some kind of innocent question from the one that he loves. In verse 6, Delilah says, please. At least she's polite, right? She says, please. Please tell me where your great strength lies, how you might be bound that one could subdue you. He plays the game. It reminds me of really a few years ago. You know when those, those lockout, breakout games came on the scene? A lot of urban cities. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. There's a whole industry right now that you go to this building and there's six or seven different lockout rooms you pay a fee, 15 bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, you and a bunch of your friends, and you're locked inside of a room, and the rooms are all decorated up. I remember my family went uh, with my in-laws. We were in Georgia. Um, we were in Augusta, Georgia, and there was this lockout room all about one hour. If you can get out, you've saved the world. If you can't get out, you haven't saved the world because inside the room where you are, you have the key to this disease outbreak. You have to get out of this room. And it's decorated like a mad scientist. And we're running around figuring out these clues. It was all fun in the last five minutes because we thought we just, we solved it. We push a button on the wall. Another thing slides off the wall. It reveals a clue. We type in the clue. We thought, okay, the door's going to open. We're done. A little side door opens. And we walk into a whole other room. And we realize, wow, we don't have time to explore this whole room in five minutes. So we got locked in. Then the staff come and they let us out. Here's why all that was fun. Because we knew at the end of the day, whether we solve the riddle and we bust out of the room or whether we can't figure it out and we're locked in there, we're the ones in control because we're the paying customers. We're going to be let out. It's all going to be okay. That's a lot like how Samson feels here. He's in control. He can tell Delilah whatever he wants about how he could be bound he knows even if he's asleep and she does any of those things to him, because that's not the real secret of his strength, he can bust out of it. He's playing a game. Verse 7 tells us the first game he plays: seven fresh bowstrings. Verse 11 tells us the second game: hey, you know what? It's actually new ropes. Bind me with those. Verse 13: third round of the game. Same story, different means. Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, You've mocked me and told me lies. That's true. She's actually speaking truth there. But her truth is leveraged to then go back to her agenda, her lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin. He's just playing a game. Are you like Samson in any way? Is temptation a game to you? Do you ever think that you're above temptation? Is is there anything in your life that you think, you know what, I used to be tempted by that. I'm actually not tempted anymore, and I can't be tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.12 tells us, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that God cares for you is he puts you in a church family so that you're not left alone to play games with temptation. You can confess what tempts you to your brothers and sisters. By no show of hands, ask yourself, acknowledge in this moment, is there someone else in this congregation who knows the way you are tempted And who checks in on you. Who's able to pull the red card and say, you know what, you're you're getting so close to the line again and again, You, you don't seem to be taking temptation seriously. I praise God in our elders' meetings, at the end of every elders' meeting, we have accountability times. It's good to share with other Christians what tempts you, even if you haven't given in to the temptation. I know when I was growing up, I thought, I don't want an accountability partner, because that's the person I go to every time I mess up. Ah, half true. Other Christians, brothers and sisters who you know, you don't just go to them when you have messed up. You go to them when you're walking with God, and you tell them what would tempt you to mess up. So they can pray for you. So that when you confess your sin to them, it's no surprise. We are not meant to go it alone. We're not meant to play a game with temptation. Before moving on to the next news headline here, why is it so significant that Samson is toying with temptation? Why does that matter? Yes, it matters for our own lives, but from a biblical theology perspective, why does that matter? Well, here's why. Because so goes the leader so goes the nation. The nation of Israel is doomed if this is the last and final judge God is providing for them at this time. As stated last week, Samson is and is not Israel's holy deliverer. That might sound confusing to you. He is and is not Israel's holy deliverer. But that's typology. This is why it's significant that he's playing with temptation. You might ask yourself, what is typology? What are you talking about? Well, it's it's something that helps us understand the Old Testament and New Testament and appreciate the fulfillment of Christ. Typology is a a lens by which we view the Bible, meaning this. It describes a, a real historical person or event, viewing it as a pattern or installment in the way God will match on later in the Scriptures, bringing fulfillment. A guy named Graham Goldsworthy, Australian scholar, said it this way. Typology. The principle that people, events, and institutions in the Old Testament correspond to and foreshadow other people, events, or institutions that come later. He's talking about Jesus. So let me just break this down in in just simple terms. Because I know when I see definitions like that, I think, okay, I guess typology is significant for why Samson's sinning. Here's why it matters. Two examples. A, David, B, Adam. David is and is not the Davidic king. He is a real king in the Old Testament. We know that. But as Psalm 110 tells us, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool. So David was this type foreshadowing the greater David to come. And we know that King Jesus, Jesus is the new David, the true Davidic king. Again, Adam in the garden. Adam is and is not the first man. That makes no sense if you read Genesis 1, 2, and you stop. The only way to know that Adam is and is not the first man is to read your whole Bible. We know in Romans 5.14, and here's where the word typology is in the Bible itself, Romans 5.14 says death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. God wants you to understand what typology is so that you can understand the Old Testament so that it will point you to Jesus Christ. Paul's argument there in Romans is that One man's transgression brought death and condemnation for all that followed in him, followed in him after him. But then he describes one man who brought a gift of righteousness to make life reign for many who would be in him, Jesus. So Adam was a type. Jesus is the new Adam. He succeeds the pattern and mission where Adam failed. Jesus is the first man bringing life. As in Adam, all die. So now in Christ, if you're in Christ, all live. 1 Corinthians 15 says more about this. So this tangent we've been spending on typology connects back to this story with Samson because Samson is and is not the holy deliverer. Jesus is the new Samson. That's going to be fleshed out between now and the end of the sermon. We need to understand typology really closely here as we we finish out this chapter. Jesus will prove that he is the new Samson, the strong, mighty one who is holy, who doesn't play games with temptation. If you want to know more about this and study it more, two books I would recommend. Jim Hamilton, he's a professor at Southern Seminary. He wrote a book called What is Biblical Theology, and it's extremely short, easy to read, accessible. What is Biblical Theology? And Graham Goldsworthy wrote a book called Gospel and Kingdom, another extremely short book. But if you want to understand more about typology, the Old Testament, how everything points to Christ, how these different men like David and Adam were just installments on the path leading us to Jesus, read some of those books, talk to Samuel or myself or Ryan or or Taylor, any of the elders, We'd, we'd love to help you put your Bible together the way the scriptures do according to Romans 5.14 typology. Well, the need for typology comes to bear on these last two headlines. Headline number three. News headline number three. Captured, Samson is bound and blinded. This is verses 15 through 22. If you were to read that news story, the core of the story, the reporter would tell you, Samson disregards holiness. His heart is devoted to idols. He fails to guard his heart. His loyalty to the the Lord, his loyalty is compromised. His holy devotion evaporates. We see all this in verse 15. Put your eyes on verse 15. She said to Samson, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? How ironic. Her heart is not with him. You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard, verse 16, when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, urged him, his soul was vexed to death. How different than the life of Joseph that we read about earlier in this service. In Potiphar's house, he takes steps to guard his heart every day. But here Samson disregards holiness We know that because of verse 17. He told her all his heart. He tells her everything. Verse 17, he said, A razor's never come upon my head. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved and my strength will leave me, I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up, he's told me all his heart. So verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, twice, the word heart keeps coming up. That's the author's focus here. Samson's heart is no longer wholly devoted to the Lord. He he disregards holiness. His heart is given over to his idols, namely this woman. Because his heart is devoted to idols, his walk with God evaporates. And tragically, he learns the hard way, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. He gave his heart to his idol, not to God. And here's what happens. Verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and presumably every time he's asleep is when she's been doing these these binding moments on him. And we get some of the inner chamber of Samson's heart, his inner thinking, and he says, I'm going to go out like other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, and these could be some of the scariest words in all of the scripture, that the Lord had left him. Romans 1 teaches us there is a category of God's judgment where he actually withdraws his presence. We often think of God's wrath and justice as immediate pain. If I sin, I'm immediately struck by lightning. I immediately lose money out of my bank account. In the scriptures, we see our sin, our disregard for holiness, causes us to lose the presence of the Lord's fellowship with us. Kind of like in marriage. You know how it is. Husbands, wives. If you Treat your spouse poorly. It doesn't make you snap your fingers. You're no longer married at that point. But it severely hinders any fellowship and warmth that's there. Sin does that. I like how John MacArthur said it in just five words of what now happens to Samson. He says, sin blinds and later grinds. That's what we see happen right here. Verse 21. The Philistines seized him gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in prison. Why? Because the Lord had left him. The Spirit of the Lord was his strength. His hair was just this outward symbol of his relationship to the Lord, of maintaining his Nazarite vow. In previous chapters, he was already compromising his vow. Here he goes all the way over the line and willingly treats his vow with contempt. He values Delilah's trust over the Lord's. This is where sin takes us. Do you believe that sin really does lead to a tragic pit? This is what happens to Samson. These are some irreversible consequences here. His eyes are gouged out. His eyes are gone. We should be encouraged, though. As much as his eyes are gouged out, you remember the very thing that kept getting him in trouble? His eyes. The Lord always has good purposes, even when he allows Christians to choose the sin when they flee from him. God knows one of the ways to make Samson more humble To get his attention is to have his eyes plucked out of his head. That's what happens. It was interesting in studying this passage. I came across a sermon by Charles Spurgeon in 1887, roughly 10 years before the great Houdini was doing his tricks. And Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on verse 22 there. His hair began to grow. He preached a whole sermon on just that verse. And it was a wonderful sermon to, to backsliding Christians. Come back to the Lord. No matter what the enemy's done to you, they can't get to the root. It's going to grow again. But Spurgeon had this searing quote in that sermon. This helps us see again how tragic this was. Spurgeon said, quote, Yet it is an evil and bitter thing to wonder from the Lord. Though Samson's hair grew again, his strength came back, and he died gloriously fighting the Philistines, yet he never recovered his eyes or his liberty or his living power in Israel. He could not rise again to be the man he had been before. Sin, brothers and sisters, has real consequences. Tremble at the thought that you would sin against the Lord. Don't comfort yourself by thinking, I can do this sin, but I know I'm still a Christian. There can be irreversible consequences to your sin that will grieve you the rest of your days. Samson, at this point, is kind of like a large ship with the rudder removed. From the outside, it looks like, wow, he has no eyesight anymore. He's helpless. But the way God sees Samson now, aha, now he's a vessel I can work with. He's not going to be going by his own vision anymore. And this brings us to the fourth and final headline. Headline four, Dagon's party is crashed. If you were to read that news story, the reporter would be telling you, Samson dishonors the glory of God until he's desperate. He dishonors the glory of God until he's desperate. We see in verse 23, the Philistines gather to offer a sacrifice to their god, Dagon. Some say he's a sea god, half man, half fish. There's old images of him. Others say he's more of an agricultural god of grain. Scholars debate about it. Sometimes I wish scholars would just agree. He's the pagan god of the Philistines. That's what's happening here. They're worshiping him. The glory of God is dishonored in Samson's life, as we see in verse 24. When the people saw him, they praised their god. They think their God, Dagon, has delivered Samson. What a lesson for us as Christians that that our foolish choices can really, truly bring reproach on the Lord's reputation and create occasions for for non-believers to celebrate their God because of your unfaithfulness. If you happen to not be a believer this morning and you're hearing this, and Christians have always been that back pocket reason you have, they're so hypocritical to why you don't want to follow the Lord, Let this be a reminder that the only way you can use a Christian as a reason not to be a Christian is when that Christian is disobeying the Lord. So you're actually using evidence that proves even further God exists, people should follow him, because you're affirming that, well, if they don't follow him, that's my reason. Well, what if they do follow him? Would you follow God then? Samson, who made a sport of temptation now becomes the sport himself. They make fun of him. From verses 25 down to 27, the word entertained is used three times. Maybe they're throwing stuff at him. I mean, picture a blind guy, thousands of people around. He's not telling jokes. Strapping muscles, shaven head. Who knows how many times he entertained them. Maybe they're throwing things at him and he can't see it. Maybe they're dressing him up in silly costumes that he can't see parading him around. He is a laughing stock of the enemy. But he calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse 28. He's desperate. He calls upon God's name. He says, Lord, please remember me. Strengthen me. And he puts his hand on those two middle pillars. The ESV study Bible has a nice little footnote about this, that two middle pillars in a temple of this period was characteristic of Philistine architecture. The whole weight of all the structure would lean on two middle pillars. So this was the part, if you knock that out, everything falls. And he prays for God's strength, and he he leans on them. And this is not really suicide, so much as it's for the glory of God to serve the Lord in self-denial, for the good of God, for the good of his country. And he knocks down the pillars. Samson's living mirrors the way Israel is living. All throughout these headlines, we've seen that Samson, he's capable of greatness. I mean, look what he did right there when he calls upon the name of the Lord. Look at what God does through him. We see through his life, God is willing and able to save. God is willing and ready to work through his servants who call on him. But God won't let you sin and act like it doesn't matter. What we sow is what we reap. But I'm so thankful that this whole passage, we'll, we'll close on this idea, this whole passage points again to Jesus, that typology. Ask yourself who we're talking about right here, okay? Who are we talking about? Samson or Jesus? You, you tell me. There's one who is betrayed with silver bribery monies and then bound and then mocked and then has the reputation of being this champion, Messiah, but is mocked, who dies with arms outstretched at his death, calling upon the name of the Lord in his final breaths, triumphing over his enemies in his death. Who are we talking about, Samson or Jesus? Both. That's what typology does for us. I praise God that in the midst of Israel's sin, which they can't escape, God provides salvation. And I pray that today, if, if you want to escape the wrath of God, you wouldn't try to figure out a clever way of doing more good than bad. You would trust that one with outstretched arms, who cried to the Lord, who gave up himself to defeat your enemies. And your enemy is not just death, your enemy is your sin. Jesus died for you. Jesus went to the cross so that all of your sin, all of that wrath would be laid on him. And just like Samson, he was put in a grave by those who loved him. But unlike Samson, he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the grave, vindicated the promises of God, ascended to the Father, and calls all of us turn. Trust in me, the strong man with all authority. Live your life for me. Don't play games with sin, and watch how I can use you. Do you know that great escape? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way your Old Testament proclaims your Son, Christ. We thank you, Lord, for for being strong enough to defeat our enemy of sin, Help us, Lord, to take holiness seriously. Help us to read the headlines of our own day, even our own lives, our own church, with theological eyes. Father, we thank you for the way Christ has provided the only escape we could ever need. And we thank you, Lord, that you are never tricked. Your justice is always satisfied. Help us to praise alongside of you your perfect, holy justice. In the name of your Son, Christ, we pray. Amen.